Welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. This week, the most important photographer of the 19th century American East. David C. Ward joins me to discuss a National Portrait Gallery retrospective exhibition he co-curated titled Dark Fields of the Republic, Alexander Gardner Photographs, 1859-72. Gardner came to prominence for the many portraits he made of President Abraham Lincoln and then for his pictures of the Civil War. Later in his career, he photographed Washington politicians and government figures, Native American VIPs, and he traveled to the Midwest as a railroad photographer. Dark Fields of the Republic will be on view in Washington through March 13, 2016. Heather Shannon, formerly of the National Museum of the American Indian and now a curator at the Eastman House, was Ward's co-curator. The exhibition includes 140 pictures, books, and stereographs, including Gardner's landmark 1865 Cracked Plate photograph of Lincoln, which is in the National Portrait Gallery's collection. The NPG did not publish a catalog of the exhibition. On the second segment, Jillian Steinhauer, a senior editor at Hyperallergic, discusses whether there can be gender parity in the arts. Later this month, Steinhauer will participate in the first in a series of events at Washington's National Museum of Women in the Arts, titled Women, Arts, and Social Change. Steinhauer will join an impressive lineup on October 18th for the series kickoff program Writing the Balance. Tickets are 15 to $25 and are available now. We'll have links to where you can purchase them on manpodcast.com. But first, David C. Ward, after the break. International Pop at the Dallas Museum of Art chronicles the global emergence of pop in the 1960s and early 1970s. While previous exhibitions have primarily focused on the dominance of pop activity in New York and London, this exhibition examines work from artists across the globe who were confronting many of the same radical developments. International Pop navigates a fast-paced world packed with bold and thought-provoking imagery, revealing a vibrant cultural period shaped by widespread political revolution. International Pop is on view October 11th to January 17th. Visit dma.org for more information. The Getty's new exhibition, Power and Pathos, Bronze Sculpture of the Hellenistic World, on view through November 1st, brings together 50 of the most important bronzes from antiquity, from sculptures known since the Renaissance to spectacular recent discoveries from the depths of the sea. These innovative, realistic bronze works of physical power and emotional intensity have been dubbed a can't-miss by the L.A. Times. A catalog of the same name brings the exhibition into your home. To learn more, visit getty.edu. And we're back. David Ward, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thanks a lot, Tyler. Really great to talk to you. So let's set up the show for people a little bit. Alexander Gardner is most famous for the pictures he took in the aftermath of the Battle of Antietam, and there are lots of those in the show. But his career in photography starts well before that, and that's reflected in your exhibition too. So how did Gardner come to photography, and what kinds of things did he kind of get his start by shooting? Well, I think that, again, the one thing that I think I have to emphasize to to our listeners is that we know very little, comparatively to other artists, about Alexander Gardner and his career. He left very few records. What we have are the documents themselves, the photographs. He was Scots-born. There's a connection with America where his family apparently moved back and forth to the Middle West, Iowa mostly. And he was one of these Scottish working men who was very good with his hands. He was very interested in technology, mechanisms, practice. And we don't exactly know how he came specifically to photography. We do know that he encountered Matthew Brady at the London Exposition in the, in, in the 1850s. 
And I and and the evidence is that he pitched himself to Matthew Brady, who of course is the figure that everybody associates with the Civil War, as a photographer. Brady employed him in New York and Washington at the outbreak of the Civil War. Brady Gardner was was running the the, the Brady office in in Washington D.C. So there was an entrepreneurial element as well, which I think is very important to remember. He was a commercial photographer. He's not in any way. I mean, he's he making a living by taking images, which I think is key to what's in the exhibition and also. So to, to, to the way that the arc of his career, that there is money-making imperative here. And what, what, what I think attracted him to a photography was the, the element of the technology and that he was adept at it. He liked, I, my supposition is that he liked the machinery. He liked the image-making. And of course, photography, in the, this is around about 1857, 1861, when he's in Washington, he is doing what most photographers did. He was taking portraits. I mean, it was very much an indoor act, indoor art. He was commemorating the rising middle class and being in Washington, he was commemorating the good and the great of, of the national capital. So he, he, it's the transition from the print culture to photography. There's still some difficulty in photography reproduced in, in, in journals. There's this back and forth. The first image in the show, in fact, is of, of John C. Calhoun in a print because there was this fixation on recording the, the famous men of the, of the Republic and, and Calhoun would be in this gallery. And so there are photographs, which then would be transmuted into or transformed into, into an etching. Gardner, as we say, is, is working for Brady and fortuitously, he's, he's in Washington when the war breaks out. It's 1861. He photographs Lincoln just before Lincoln is inaugurated. He photographs Lincoln's inauguration and he then starts to do what I think is important is he takes the camera outside for something more than the, the kind of picturesque sites of say Washington's tomb which is in the exhibition. He starts to verge on photographing events. You allude to the battle pictures and we'll get to those in, I think in probably a minute. But so far it's a it's a fairly standard arc for a, a person who is adept, who is visually interested in his surroundings and, and technologically interested in these, this new mechanism and the fairly complicated process of, of, of creating a, a photographic plate and printing, printing a, a, a picture. One of the interesting things about early Gardner, say pre-Civil War battles Gardner, is that he's among the surprisingly few early American photographers to self-consciously create an image of himself to do what, you know, in more recent times, say, Joan Didion did by leaning on a Corvette Stingray. How does Gardner create an image of himself? What is that image and what might we learn or infer from it? This, that's actually a really key question for not just Gardner, but the whole political visual culture. And I want to bring in right at the outset here, Walt Whitman and Abraham Lincoln. There's an element here of, of self-fashioning in Gardner that the first image that we have of Gardner in the exhibition depicts him, to be blunt, was a very hairy man with an elaborate Highland, Highlander bushy beard. And this, this image before the war shows him essentially as a mountain man. He's wearing what appear to be buckskins. He's holding a bow and, of a bow and arrow. He's got a big hat on, which he actually looks a little bit like he has a, a giant afro, which only emphasizes the hairiness. And there's a kind of a notion, a, a, a kind of, a, a, in a comic kind of way, but you have to take it seriously. There's this simulacrum, this, this synthesis really between the Scottish Highlander, the wild man of the woods, but also the American Adam. That 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 this is this is a 
it's nature boy, if you will, that, that he, there's clearly an affinity with, with this element of, of being out in nature, of being an activist, of being at home in the, in, in, in the open air. The F.O. Matheson, the great critic of the American Renaissance, who, who essentially reinvented the discovery of Emerson and Whitman and, and, and Melville, the theme of that book is man in the open air. And that's the theme that I've, I've tried implicitly to develop in, in Dark Fields of the Republic. Which, which is the way in which there's an encounter with the out of doors from the battle picture. Well, the, the first the first outdoor picture in the exhibition is Lincoln's inauguration in March 1861, and then the way the camera moves around, the way in which suddenly the the horizon gets bigger, the sky gets bigger, the way in which there's an American encounter in a very American studyish way with the land and sky. But the other thing about it is, since again, Gardner, as, as I indicated earlier, is looking to make a living, is that he's creating this image of himself as, first of all, a man of the people. I mean, there's a there's a there's a connection here with Whitman posing himself as one of the roughs, one of the at the first edition of Leaves of Grass, and and Gardner takes subsequent self-portraits of himself where he's not dressed in the Western garb, but he's very much, a, it's, a, it's a very much a democratic image with a small d of the working man. You can almost see, and in fact, I think in one of the photographs where he's seated, you can almost see the grime under his nails from, from working at this, with these chemicals and working in, in the practice of, of taking photographs. And what he's doing here, of course, and this is at a more rarefied level, Whitman for, for writing and Lincoln for politics and, and are connecting with the way in which photography is a, is, is a projection of yourself onto the world or out into the world. But it's also, it, it's a medium that then becomes malleable, that Whitman in particular identifies photography as a way of changing his persona for different audiences and over different times. Lincoln views photography, and we see this in the, in the exhibition, because Gardner was Lincoln's favorite photographer. Lincoln uses photography as a record of his self. It, it shows him on duty during the war, and you can chart almost, almost monthly the, the way in which the war takes its toll and impresses itself on his flesh. So there's this, again, this element of self-creation, self-fashioning, self-exhibition. And for Gardner, this element of advertising himself, which I think, and, and you actually would probably know more about this than me, I, I'm also wondering if he's posing himself as the romantic artist. I'm emphasizing the working class element, but as I'm talking, it occurs to me, he looks a little bit like Claude Monet. I mean, he gets, he's got the big, the biggish beard and, and, and all the rest of it. And I'm wondering if there's kind of a beginning of a romantic sensibility in, in the later 19th century uh, as well. To me, he looks like he's costuming himself in a mode that no longer exists. I mean, the Mountain Man era that he seems to be identifying with ends in in the 1840s. And, and many historians have argued it ends in 1840 with the, the end of the fur trader gatherings um, along the Green yeah, River. I was thinking the same thing, is that this seems to be like Jim Bridger and the, and the sort of great encampments. And it, and, and, it, and, and it gets, again, back to the divided nature of Gardner, of, of having one foot in a kind of older Victorian, even the, even the, even the early labor movement, of course, is, is pre-industrial, if you will. It's, it, he's coming out of that. And, and what, he's, what he's doing is, is, is hearkening back in a a kind of an at least in that first photograph, because he's not doing it in the second and third ones, where he does transition to a more modern presentation. 
But there's still, you know, early on, there still is this, this romantic adherence, even if it was only 10 years earlier, there's still this sense of nostalgia in which trying to ally himself with, with, with not with what was happening, but what, what, with what Americans wanted to think was still present. I mean, we still as Americans have, you know, this notion of, of the Lone Scout, the Turner thesis in, in American historiography, the, the settlement of the land being a romantic process of, of, of the Lone Scout trailing everything after after him. Gardner, of course, is the Lone Scout for photography in, in this period. That He's bringing, and we can get to this with my view of the, of the Gettysburg pictures, he's bringing in a, in a kind of way that he doesn't completely understand or even trust the, the modern world into our visual encapsulation of that. You mentioned the Abraham Lincoln pictures, and with the exception of, of Gilbert Stewart and George Washington, which is kind of a relationship forged through duplication in Stewart's studio rather than actually existing between the two as a regular ongoing thing. No artist in American history is more closely linked to a president than Gardner is to Abraham Lincoln. There are about a half dozen of Gardner's Lincolns in the show, and they're images that played a significant role in creating Lincoln for the American people. It would have been really the first time photography had an opportunity to play that role. So before we get to a couple of the images and how you've displayed both prints and in one case a glass plate negative, which I want to talk about, how do Gardner and Lincoln meet? How do they kind of start their relationship? Actually, I don't know. I have to say that he's in, in town... The, the whole process, again, in terms of whether Lincoln approached Gardner, whether Gardner solicited Lincoln, I, I simply don't know. The politicians were getting their pictures taken. The first picture is in 1861, just before the inauguration. Lincoln, Lincoln sits for Gardner. They obviously hit it off when Gardner sets up his studio in, in 1863. Lincoln is his first customer. He makes a point of coming of coming in and having his picture taken. But again, the, the, the process of meeting is... is is, is okay. So as I mentioned a moment ago, there are quite a number of, of gardeners of Lincoln in the show. What do we see happening or changing other than kind of that, that sign of the physical toll of the war? What do we see changing through the pictures? Well, first of all, I, I, I will switch the emphasis here because I'm, I'm interested in the way in which Lincoln used photography. I mean, famously, there's the famous episode where, I mean, Lincoln, who I do regard as a, as a as a preternatural political genius, recognizes the way the photography is going to be a campaign and political instrument. And coming from Illinois, being a one-term congressman, he recognizes that he has to, again, in the same way that Gardner would would, would advertise his presence through his, his photographs, Lincoln, the famous occasion when Lincoln comes east to give the, the he's invited east by by Henry Ward Beecher and gives the famous speech at the Cooper Union, and he has his photograph taken by Brady, and he's in Lincoln's, and it, it's, he's wearing a Brooks Brothers suit. He's sober. He's standing next to the table with the law books. He is a man who obviously has the, you know, projecting the gravitas in, by which he will will appeal to an electorate that doesn't yet know him. And of course, the speech then reemphasizes this: you needed the substance as well as the form. Lincoln was always getting his photograph taken, there, you know, in a, in a way that I don't think other politicians recognized. That Lincoln, I mean, literally would be sitting around the White House and, and talk to his secretaries, and they'd go down to Gardner's studio, and he, was, he would have his photograph taken. What Gardner is doing, of course, is documenting the arrival of this new force, Lincoln, on, this, on the public scene. The first picture in the exhibition is March 
in which I'm not sure I totally buy this story that Lincoln is apparently hiding his right hand because it's swollen from all the handshaking he's been doing coming in from Springfield. And, and Lincoln, of course, is the main presence in Washington and is, is receptive to the, to, to, the, to the new medium of, of photography. There's, this, there's this, this call and response between the two of them in which, which Gardner is sympathetic to, partly because it's, of course, a great selling point for him. He's selling these everything from the carpet to the seats to the larger pictures of, of the Imperials of Lincoln. And for Lincoln, Lincoln is getting a political benefit about it. Of course, Gardner is having a commercial you know, success out of it. He's identified as Lincoln's photographer, essentially, which I think helps him when it comes to, say, getting pictures, which are quasi-official of the hangings of the Lincoln conspira- of the conspirators in, in 65. What happens in the in the photographs is 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 an interesting evolution to the final photograph, which is the famous cracked plate of February 1865, which is an accidental, ironically, this masterpiece, which is which is identified with the portrait gallery and with Gardner and with Lincoln. It's it's accidental. It, it's because of a mistake that what you have is is Lincoln displaying himself to the public. But but there's also this moment, if I can jump ahead to six, 1863. This moment where I think photography begins to influence the war, where in November 8th, the sitting of November 8th, 1863, when, when Lincoln comes to Gardner's studio, it's, it's nine days before the Gettysburg Address. And I'm convinced that, I think other historians like Eleanor Harvey agree with me on this, that Lincoln saw the Gettysburg photographs in, his, in the studio. And Lincoln, knowing photography, I believe, would have known of the Antietam pictures of the year, earlier year, and we know that Lincoln at that sitting was was reading Edward Everett's two to three hour oration because Everett being a crafty man had published the oration before he delivered it in the newspaper. And and Lincoln was looking at these battle pictures of the casualties of the dead. And I think that that materially changes the structure of the Gettysburg Address that Lincoln reads the, the long Victorian address that, that Everett is going to deliver and says, well, I'm not going to do that. I'll go for short. And secondly, he realizes looking at these pictures, at the photographs, that there's a that this is going to provide him with the opportunity to make the famous statement that nothing we do or say here can consecrate this ground any any more than the men who have already died here have consecrated it, and it's for us, the living, to rededicate ourselves to this new birth of freedom. And that, I, I think, again, is the way in which photography, the medium, is influencing politics. I think is very striking. Also, that just in terms of the the, the formal qualities of the photograph. That's the that's the one full directly full face, the, the one that, that's in the exhibition anyway, from a sitting with multiple images. It's a it's it's a it's a very tightly focused carte de visite full face Lincoln. It's my favorite. Where Lincoln, to be blunt, looks ferocious. Lincoln looks like the war president in that. In other in other Lincolns, particularly when he's sitting with his legs crossed and he's 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 looking down at his glasses or fiddling with a pencil. There's a there's a kind of hominess. There's the kind of Father Abraham image. There's this this the kind of the folksy Lincoln, which of course Lincoln Lincoln played up. But in the November, that November picture that comes right after the right before the Gettysburg Address, Lincoln is direct and he does look like a war eagle. It's a very striking, very powerful image. My favorite of the Lincoln pictures in the show is the 1863 Imperial Plate picture. And you've done an interesting thing with it. You have it 
you, you have a print of the picture on the wall and and then what's in the middle of well, the that that actually is is again in terms of the artifacts of photography which is again i i, I will say i'm a i'm a cultural historian first and and know actually only a, a little of, of photographic history one of the things that the exhibition does is it displays cart it displays stereoscopes we have a, a modern stereoscope machine so you can see the battle of antietam pictures as you would have seen them in the 19th century after you bought them and took them you know either the the, the elaborate machine in, that we have or the the homemade machines that were the, the smaller portable machines you would use at home and what we have in that gallery, though, is again, in terms of looking at photographic processes and results and, and, and media, is we've, it's, it's what I believe is one of two surviving imperial glass plates of a Gardner negative. It's in a case with a light in it so that when you, and it's, it's, it's motion controlled so that when the visitor approaches the case, it lights up. And so you can see it. And because it still has a res chemical residue on it, and we want to be careful about the heating, it also has a fan in it. So we 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 simultaneously light it and cool it. And what you see is the negative. Um, what you see is is what Gardner would have prepared, you know, that day in 63 when he, he, he had that sitting with Lincoln. And then again, I, I have to say, I, I, I think maybe because I'm getting older, it's the, the, there's a kind of spooky element in a, I guess if you want to be really intellectual in a kind of Walter Benjamin way that this stuff has, a, these artifacts have an aura to them, which, which does to me anyways, really connect you to the past that this was handled by Gardner at the mo in the presence of Lincoln there's a kind of almost uh, I'm, I'm exaggerating here but there is a kind of culturally you know almost sacred element to it to me that this uh, these artifacts survive and the, and the, it's extraordinarily rare they were very fragile the big place broke a lot we have there there are more, many more stereoscope negatives class plates because you could store them in a shoebox and put them under the bed and they wouldn't they wouldn't be kicked around and broken, and it 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 again alludes to the to the complexities of this process. That people, you know, again, I've I've started to do tours and I have docent training on this. Is that you know, again, I'll sound like an old fogey, but you know, explaining to 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 millennials that the it's not only that it's not digital, but there's not even film. That you're back to 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 glass plates and 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 you know, a hand process of of coating the plate and pulling the print is. It was a technology that's completely lost now. So to have that evidence, to have that connection to me is, is extraordinarily striking. The other thing that's great, of course, since we are a museum, is visually stunning. It, it's visually dramatic in a way that, that, that I think is really powerful. The other great thing about that picture, I love the glass plate. I mean, just to give people an idea of how unbelievably rare it is to get to see one of these things, Carlton Watkins, probably the most prolific photographer of, of, of the era. Watkins is active from the late 1850s into the early 1890s, took over 1,300 glass plate mammoth sized mammoth format pictures that he turned into prints and probably more. And I think only one of those, a single one of those plates exists today. So yeah, it's pretty rare. One of the, one of the great things I like about that 1863 picture of Lincoln is that his clothes are just hanging off of him like his shoulders are are a hanger it is a really palpably in, in part because of the imperial size which was the largest imperial size is the largest any photographer but watkins was uh, able to make a picture of at the time because of the size you can just see that the clothes are barely being held up by bones yeah it's the uncanny thing again this marriage between and, and this is where again however he did it i mean i think i think artistic processes 
I mean, I know you're a sports fan and, and you know, say, say take tennis where there's such a fine margin between being very good and great. And, and, and it, it's, it's this element of, of the, of, of the, again, the uncanny or the inexplicable or, the, or having the touch or the knack. The gardener, uh, and this is why the, the crack plate is interesting to me because it, 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 it's different. But the, the way in which he gets this incredible clarity and, and almost 3D element to the face, particularly since Lincoln's face is so craggy and lined, and then the clothing or the detail that there's, in one of the photographs, there's a fly, there's a horsefly on Lincoln's knee, or the fiddling with the glasses. And, and Gardner is able to have that, just that documentary element, where, as you say, it becomes... It, the empirical and the documentary then becomes something else because we're putting it in a narrative. And I'll go back to my title, Dark Fields of the Republic. We're putting it in a, in a narrative of, of suffering, of, of Lincoln wearing away, of, of, the, of what we know to be true, the assassination, of what we know will happen at the battles, of what we know, you know, the fate of the Union. What I wanted in this exhibition was to deal with, again, that 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 rhetorical power of history that, to be blunt, we, we as Americans tend to elide. We don't, we don't want to think about history as tragedy. We don't want to think about it as suffering. We, we prefer the kind of the, the sentimental at best of the, the fiddle music and the, the love letter and the Eva Bull Run and, and the brother v. brother interpretation of the war, which of course completely swerves us away from the question that Lincoln raised at Gettysburg or Lincoln's evolution as he thought about the war for the Union becoming a war against slavery, the unfinished revolution in African-American freedom. All of those things are, are, to me, a narrative that Gardner, inadvertently or not, or just through his touch, documents because he's right there with Lincoln or right there at Antietam to, to move to those pictures that, 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 that there's... There's this, there's this gravity to me anyway, which, which, which comes through in, 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 in the very detailed and expertise of Gardner's photographs. I mean, to me again, there's an uncanny element to it, which, and I'm using that in the in the spooky sense of the word uncanny. That that there's a there's a ghost presence in these photographs of of what was going on at the time in 1863, and then what we read back through those pictures from 2015 and the events of the last two years to the to all the other events that, that have, this palim says that we impose on the past. And, and so Gardner is both, is in two places at once for me. He's, he's both the, the, the documentarian of a particular moment, but then he's also dealing with the construction of American history. The, the history that we have been kind of talking around without talking about specifically is is the Civil War. And there are a number of Gardner Civil War pictures in the show, including Home of a Rebel Sharpshooter, the most probably the most famous and most infamous photo of the Civil War. Yours is the first kind of very major exhibition to include the picture since Jeff Rosenheim's Civil War exhibition at the Metropolitan Museum of Art a couple of years ago. As kind of an intro to the image, could you quickly describe it and then quickly describe why it is controversial among historians and ethicists, for that matter? <laughs> well, Gardner, I have to back up just a little bit because we're, we're getting to Gettysburg in 1863 without having 
yet discussed Antietam in 1862, which was Gardner's big breakthrough moment. That he, after the Battle of Antietam, September 17th, he's 1862. He's still working for Brady in Washington. He takes his portable darkroom out to Sharpsburg and starts to photograph the, the, the aftermath of the battle. And it, again, it's an indication of how unprepared the military infrastructure was. The, the corpses, the battlefield was still strewn with corpses. Gardner takes the photographs. They're exhibited at Brady's studio in, in New York they, as the dead at Antietam. They cause a sensation, which I'd like, and I'm sure you will too, I'd like to come back to in terms of the sea change in American American perceptions, not just of war, but about their own culture. So a year later, Gettysburg, 1863, a much bigger battle, longer, four days, bigger battlefield. Gardner gets out there again. He wants to scoop the competition, and this motivates a lot of what I think is going to happen in this picture, home of a rebel sharpshooter, the rebel, a rebel sharpshooter's last sleep, which are the two images that we have in, in this exhibition. He starts to photograph the, the battlefield. He, he, he apparently, again, the, the idea is that he didn't really have a good sense of what this what the field was like, and his photographs tend to focus on the southern part of the battlefield. And what he did with the rebel sharpshooter is that he dragged a corpse out of a burial line of Confederate dead and repositioned it somewhere in and around the Devil's Den, which is this rocky, this, Gettysburg has the large plain of which we associate with Pickett's Charge between the two ridges, and then at the there's this, I think it was a glacial romaine, there's a there's a there's a rock pile at the at the end of that Devil's Den where there was savage fighting. And what Gardner did was construct this narrative, manipulating this corpse and adding a rifle and positioning the corpse this way and that in a way to construct a narrative about what was happening visually. He also constructed a totally fictitious narrative that he was the one who later had discovered the corpse. Well, you know, that the corpse had been hidden away and that, that he discovered it intact, I think some months later, even that in terms of, 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 of creating this narrative of the dead rebel Confederate quote, quote, sharpshooter. And, and what he did was create this falsehood. Aside from the, the manipulation of an actual dead body of anonymous, but nonetheless, you know, as they say, with a with a family back in Georgia, manipulating a corpse and creating a narrative that was not, you know, in any way accurate. The man was not a sharpshooter. The gun was, the rifle was not his rifle. Any rifles were all picked up immediately after the battle while they waited to bury the dead. And it's, a, you know, it's it's a crime against truth. And they, it's a, it, it, in some ways, it's, I view that at best, it's distasteful that he manipulated this dead body. And what he was trying to do, and, and this goes back to the kind of dividedness that you indicated earlier, that his costume was of an earlier period. I think what he was trying to do is he didn't, he didn't completely trust the media. He had had a success by the truthfulness of the Antietam pictures in the sense that photographed what was. But he somehow in 1863 felt that he had to take it up a notch by by creating this vignette, this, this four-panel vignette of the, of the, the demise of, of this, this, this soldier. And so at the very moment in which Gardner has opened up the notion that photography, the idea that we still think of that photography is absolutely neutral, absolutely truthful, which we know it's not, he goes to the extreme case of, of fabricating an untruth in the interest of creating a narrative that would appeal to Again, the dividedness of his audience would appeal to a sentimental Victorian middle middle 19th century Northern American audience that it, 
it would create this this pathos and 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 implied you know final moments of of this soldier i don't in any way condone or excuse or and i i actually I actually find it inexplicable if Gardner never did it again. The, the only thing I will say is that, that he's acting under commercial pressure. But I also don't think he's quite aware yet of the parameters of what it is that he's doing with the new technology, that he's, he's taking us back to uh, you know, the theater and melodrama and, and framing. I, I don't think it's, it's, it's an accident that that there's a gothic element to these photographs. That they're he doesn't they're not out in the open in the landscape, or or, or you know across an open ground. They're they're put in this craggy outcropping. They're hidden. They're they're closed off. They're hermetic. There's an allusion to me, without being too highly cultural about it, to sort of Poe and Poe's caverns and cellars and dark places, the the, the very things that appeal to America with the, in the gothic pre-civil. Well, it, it was after in the 19th century generally, but certainly before the Civil War. And it's, it's, an, it's an incredible and disturbing moment, really. And the photographs have the power of, of the images. This is a dead man, you know, a couple, just a couple of days after being made dead. And, 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 and they are powerful. And you can see the way in which, again, at the very dawn of, of documentary photography, you can you can intuit or see the way in which propaganda and and manipulated images are going are going are going to be made. I mentioned a moment ago that this is the first major exhibition to include those pictures since Jeff Rosenheim's 2013 Civil War photography show at the Metropolitan. In his catalog, and when Jeff was on the podcast, he was quite insistent on on getting the opportunity to talk about this because he thought this was for him kind of one of the major new ideas to come out of his experience with the objects. But but he wrote this in the catalog, quote, to this author, it is just as plausible that after Gardner and Timothy O'Sullivan made the two photographs at the sharpshooter's home, one of the many burial parties working in the area removed the body and deposited it for internment in the lower field, where it was subsequently photographed four more times. If the photographers did not move the body, but simply documented it at two different locations, the ethical issue of fakery is diminished, if not fully resolved. Is that a possibility or a likelihood to which you subscribe? The, the scholarship by Frasentino says the opposite point, that you can, you can, the chronology is that it was in the, the burial line and then pulled out from it. Gardner's, Gardner's base narrative of, you know, of discovering the corpse himself it seems to me to make it implausible. There's a narrative that he's constructing around, regardless, well, well I'll get to that point in a minute. We will never know. The photographic evidence itself, which is the forensic evidence, is inconclusive. I, I think there's a little bit of special pleading on the part of that of that view. I tend to take, I think, the older 1970s era view that this was manipulated. It was manipulated certainly within, and, and there's an element here of, of quibbling over small but important details, he was he was still manipulating the corpse in the cairn inside the rocky the rocky setting. He was moving it around. The rifle changed his position, and so I mean I think that that leaves intact my essential point that Gardner is constructing a narrative by manipulating manipulating this corpse. I, I you know again I'll take the plea for mitigation, but I still think that there's a there's you know there's a kind of a larger photograph, there's a larger 
guilt here, if you will, in terms of, of the manipulation of what is supposed to be, you know, an accurate depiction of a battle scene. And then, uh, you know, the, the, the other point, which, which, which is immaterial of whether of how the corpse got to be where it was, is that this is the one instance where, where you know, Gardner does, you know, he creates this narrative around, the, the, again, the sentimental idea of the last sleep or the rebel sharpshooter's home, where, of course, it's not home. It's this maelstrom on the battlefield of Gettysburg. It's not sleep. He's dead. So I, I think, A, I don't think we'll know completely. I'm not sure that it's as mitigating as was concluded. And I'm not sure that it actually, I, I'm, not, I'm not sure I totally buy it. Another narrative throughout the course of the Civil War pictures is how, at least for me, is at the in, in the earlier pictures Gardner takes of the Civil War, we see a lot more rural batter, battlefield and, and corpses. And in the later pictures, as the war moved into more built up areas, we get more wreckage and more bombed out buildings. Is that merely a function of that's where the war went later in the campaign or was or could Gardner have been following the photography market, following what people wanted to buy and see? Yeah, I think there are two things there. With Antietam and Gettysburg, you have rural, isolated battlefields that Gardner could get to. Um, They were standalone battles. Afterwards, everything was quiet. People left. Uh, The soldiers left. The the battlefield was, was just there, and Gardner could move around on it. I think that once Grant moves east and the Overland campaign starts in, in six, 1864, I don't think Gardner had access to the battlefield. The fighting and the campaigning was almost continuous in, until the siege of Petersburg in, in the winter. And I just don't think he had access to it. And curiously enough, we have we have two, three pictures in the exhibition of the of the of the battlefield at, on the on the Anna River, which are Actually, again, in contrast to the earlier photographs, they're completely bucolic landscapes. One looks like a sentimental print of a, of a mill, a mill stream, where Gardner is coming in much, much later, much after the after the, the rather short, sharp engagement had happened after Spotsylvania, and he's taking pictures of the landscape almost to just to indicate that this is where a battle had occurred, rather than the evidence of the battle itself. The ruined pictures, I think, are interesting, and it, it, it links back, in a way, to the, to, the, to the rebel sharpshooter. I think there was a fascination with, with ruins. First of all, they were an indication that the South had been defeated, that we were, the North was winning the war. You had the, the, the naval yard, or the, certainly the pictures of Richmond after the, after the surrender. And Gardner's capitalizing on that market. A, there's a triumphalism if the South brought low, but also... There's this fascination which which occurred to me late as we were installing the exhibition of of again not of progress but of ruin and 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 decrepitude and essentially chaos that 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 society had fallen apart and you would you would have pictures of Richmond after it after it was burned out and Gardner is capitalizing on that appeal of of, of the appeal of, of photography to the sensational and the it's it's the opposite of again the rebel sharpshooter where he he's constructing a very a Victorian melodrama around the piece. Now you have him actually alluding to you know the kind of ruins in a way that you would see in a Sir Walter Scott novel. But it but it's the element of the sensation is starting to creep into this. I I think and what occurred to me and this may have just been other people may have recognized this right away and they, they view this as being you know 
you know, like, why did it take you so long to figure this out? But it occurred to me while I was looking at the at the execution pictures, these photographs were being sold, that there was an element with photography that we think about it as documenting Abraham Lincoln's life or documenting the important events like the inaugurations or, in doc, or doc, documenting tragic events like the Gettysburg or Antietam campaigns. There was also a sensational element that comes in really early that people wanted to look at these pictures. The people were not, they were buying the, the rather gruesome book, The Dead of Antietam, or looking at the sketchbook or, or doing, buying the stereoscopes because they, they, were, they were getting a thrill at one level about looking at portraits of dead bodies or, or pictures of dead bodies. That there, there's this element of, that we have, of course, today as we're swamped with imagery. Of, of the appeal, the purient appeal that photography can can satisfy, and I, I think there was an element here, you know, that we look upon photography as the march of progress, and 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 and, and it's empirical and scientific and modern and rational, but it, but it, at the very same time, even from the outset, there's a there's this emphasis on the sensation, on the sensational, and of course we know not through Gardner, but it, it was associated with magic as well that it could photograph the spirit world or it was provide an entree to something other than what was visible to the naked eye. And I think that, I think what I'm, you know, I guess you can call it ruin porn, but there, there, there's an element with these pictures of, of that, that he's appealing to, you know, in the same way that you would have the Piranesi of the ruins of Rome, you could have the ruins of Richmond in your parlor. So another thing that really jumped out of the show to me is that Gardner took an enormous number of group portraits, probably, certainly possibly, more than any of his contemporaries, certainly more than I've ever seen in, in 19th century photography. Why did he take so I many group really, portraits? I think, again, this speaks again to the, to the, maybe it's unconscious, maybe it's intentional. What he's documenting to me, and it occurs, it occurs very early in the exhibition, and it's precisely because the Union Army, I'm just focusing on the North here, the Union Army and the military and the government was so unprepared, and, and of course that's how he has the opportunity to photograph the dead in Antietam, because the bodies weren't cleared away, the bodies weren't, the wounded weren't identified, people didn't have dog tags. And as society begins to organize, and this, of course, is the great revolution in the American society and economy, is the organizational revolution of the 19th century, the industrial processes, the organization of the railroad, all of these things. Gardner starts to document these units that are coming into being as people began to cope with modern, in the first instance, modern warfare. And then modern society, that that he, he's fascinated by you know, Jonathan Letterman and his medical corps. He's fascinated by the scouts and guides of the of the Potom Army of the Potomac. He's, he takes photographs of, of Admiral David Porter, not just alone on his ship, but Porter and his officers. He takes photographs of the of, of committees in the House of Representatives. There's this, there's this communal element, which I don't really think it connects to his own kind of socially pre-socialist communitarianism. But he's he's talking he's moving again from the lone individual to the group America getting organized in, in in small to large groups. The extraordinary pictures to me are the ones at the very end of the war where he he takes what I'm calling you know the graduation pictures of the general staffs of the Union armies, Sherman Meade and yeah, Sheridan. And, and I, I have to allude to my earlier exhibition on Grant and Lee because we had Grant staff I, I, again. I, because I've been doubling up on Civil War shows, we had Grant Grant staff in in the in the Grant and Lee show, and there are these these elements of 
moving away from from what we started with, which was the romantic individual launching himself out into space, to the organization man, uh, the, or, the way in which the, the army had to be organized simply because you couldn't fight it on a chaotic basis, but, and was documenting the changes in, in bureaucratic organization in the government or out in society in the, in the creation of the railroads. And then there's the commemorative element of the, the you know, the, the, it's not just the great general, but it's the great general and his staff, that these that these were the heroes. To me, they're, they're just tremendous pictures of, of you know, now they've become formulaic and uninteresting, I think, probably because the, the army or the military won't allow a kind of genius photographer close to them uh, to do these kind of photographs. So they, they, they don't have the same power. Maybe they're just too familiar. But there's there's a valedictory element to the to the photographs that are taken in 1865. But Gardner also and this is, again, you know, spoiled for space in the sketchbook. There 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 are these group scenes of the emerging units in the army, which I think is, again, he, he captures what's going on societally. The other thing that he does in the sketchbook, and just as a quick aside to that, is that he again starts to, con- he starts to conduct, create these little anecdotes about, you know, of the, the African-American servant giving his army officer a drink at the end of the day that we have in the exhibition, that there's an element of sort of the camp life, the informality. We have, you know, a, a we have some of those in the exhibition, but the formal portraits of of, of, of Gardner taking groups is interesting to me. There, he was apparently a, a club man. You know that there, we have a picture of him in the Hibernian Society. There's this associationism. I don't want to read too much in it because, of course, they're functional groups, and he's there to document them. I I just think they're they're again these incredible documents that that commemorate the war. I I think the ones the one that that, that that to me is the transitional moment in the in the exhibition since since Gardner goes on to go west is the one of Sheridan and Custer and, and Miles the other officers around the cavalry leaders the main cavalry figures in the Eastern Theater of the War sitting around a table posed very carefully by Gardner and then those those will be the men the generals who will go west to fight the Indian Wars and for me that's a, again a kind of a spooky moment getting to this my conception of this era as a kind of a unity. So that gets us to Gardner in the West. And I'm going to give a short shift to that period on this show. A year or two ago, we had on Jane Aspinwall on the occasion of her exhibition of Alexander Gardner, the Western photographs, 1867 to 68. The one thing I do need to say here is that I have to credit Heather Shannon, who was a curator at the National Museum of American Indian, that Heather, A, reattributed a lot of some of those photos, particularly the ones of the Indian delegations. And Heather, who's a, who is an historian of the West, photographic historian of the West, did that section of the show. And she has now moved on from American Indian to the Eastman House in Rochester. But I, I have to give her a great deal of credit for melding the two parts of the exhibition together with the, I think, some 20, 25 photographs of the of both the Western landscape and the and the and the, the American Indian photographs. The photographs I wanted to ask you about from that period are indeed those studio photographs of Native American delegations visiting Washington. So, the Nelson Atkins show of Jane Aspinwall's a couple of years ago focused entirely on the pictures Gardner took in the West. And your show includes the West coming to Washington, if you will. I'm sure you've had an opportunity to look at the differences between the two pictures and and think about 
What, if anything, do you think distinguishes Gardner's pictures of Native Americans taken in the West from the studio pictures he took in Washington? The, the one thing that I'm, I'm struck by, and again, you're reading back on this because he's, he's, he's taking documentary photographs of tribal delegations as they came in from Washington to negotiate with various departments about all kinds of issues. And apparently, according to Heather, there, there, there are thousands or hundreds of these images that have been either at the Smithsonian or, or in other repositories. Again, there's this, there's this there's this pro forma element that you get when you know today if you go to a you know a congressman's office you do the gripping grin you have a photograph taken and there was clearly a sense of documenting partly out of respect partly out of political I think political you know custom that you would have these photographs taken and what and what Gardner begins to do. And again, you're reading back on this because the, you know, the photograph in some sense is standing mute and you're reading into it what we know will occur, which is that these civilizations, these, they're going to get rolled under. That, However, in terms of you know, the, whatever, in whatever faith the, the American government was bargaining with the tribes, that none of this was going to work. There was going to be, again, this, this, this 20-year conflict that, that, of course, predates the war. It, it's intensive during the war with the for instance, the big rebellion in Minnesota in which you know, dozens of Indians were hanged after it. And starting in 67 or so, when, Gard, when, they, when Gardner is on the scene, he's still in Washington. He hasn't gone west. And again, I think there's a kind of a quasi-official element here that he becomes the kind of government documentarian. He's, he's, the Indians and the executives are coming to his studio and, and, and having these photographs taken, either as a kind of sign of respect or just to document what was going on. The thing about them is they're not anthropological, they're not ethnographical, they're not scientific studies like they, they, you know, the people are taken of slaves or you know, racial types or all this. These are you know, largely or in many cases identifiable individuals wearing tribal regalia, dressed up to, to the dignity of the occasion, meeting with these rather stiffly posed you know, be suited government officials who actually are more anonymous than the Indians, as it turns out. We're not quite sure who some of these white men are in the photographs. There's an element in which, again, reading into the photographs, the, 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 the officials are posed rather stiffly, as are the Indians. And there's this, there's this sense of looking back through a, this moment, not, I don't even think you can say it's of missed opportunities, but of of, of this freeze frame for me in which photography is starting to starting to move in a, in, a, in a way that it's capturing a moment that then will continue to something else. There's an extraordinary picture laid in the exhibition of three of the chiefs outside in what is almost a snapshot photograph, which is totally opposed formally to the, to the studio portraits that Gardner takes in Washington, where Gardner is out in the plains, he's out this can sort of hear the wind whistling again to impose a narrative on the picture where they've stepped away from the bargaining table. The, the, the three chiefs are outside in the air and everything is moving. Everything has moved. Everything has stopped. Everything is it's stopped by the camera. Everything will move again. And that's what I think across this five, seven year period, Gardner is beginning to is beginning to suggest that there's again this history element in the document of the individualized portrait. 
The other thing, of course, is just the simple fact of their evidence that, of the presence of these of, of these Indians, people that you don't think you will see suddenly appearing in the in history. I mean, the, 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 the idea, again, I go back to my origins as a working class historian, the historian of the working class that, you know, the people are hidden from history or you'll, you won't see them or they've disappeared. And it turns out that Gardner and, and some of the other photographers and those who went to the Southwest, they did document them, that you can find red cloud. You can, you can see these, these photographs. There's, there, there's this, this element of recovery, which is an historian to me is very moving. But the, 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 the photographs exist on, on a couple of different levels. There's the kind of stiff formal pose Philip Larkin has this great phrase in his, his poem about World War One: the men enlisting of their dark, archaic faces, this sort of this sort of time out of out of mind element to them. And, and, and you're back there recovering that with everything we know that happens thereafter. And so, again, there's this mixture of the, of the empirical and the documentary for me with the uncanny. Well, David Ward, thanks so much for talking. Okay, to me. thank you, Tyler. That was great. Really appreciate it. Support for The Man Podcast comes from Pulitzer Arts Foundation, presenting COTA, Digital Excavations in African Art, opening on October 16th. This exhibition features a powerful installation of nearly 50 COTA reliquary guardian figures produced in Central Africa between the 17th and 20th centuries to protect the bones of deceased ancestors. The exhibition expands upon a database and series of algorithms created to detect similarities among the sculptures, enhancing the understanding of their origins and functions. Visitors are invited to explore the hidden histories of these sculptures through an immersive digital experience created by Rampant Interactive, St. Louis-based software designers and the Pulitzer's first game developers in residence. For more details on the CODA project, visit pulitzerarts.org. The Museum of Fine Arts Houston presents Mark Rothko, a retrospective, featuring more than 60 paintings by this abstract expressionist pioneer. Houston is the only U.S. venue to present this phenomenal exhibition, which traces the development of Rothko's signature style. Now on view at the Museum of Fine Arts Houston. Visit mfah.org slash Rothko for more. Welcome back. My next guest is Julian Steinhauer, a senior editor at Hyperallergic. She joins me to talk about whether there can be gender parity in the arts. The occasion is a series of events at Washington's National Museum of Women in the Arts that starts later this month. The series as a whole is titled Women, Arts, and Social Change. Steinhauer's panel, which will kick off the program on October 18th, is titled Writing the Balance. Tickets are $15 to $25 and are available now. We will have a link to where you can purchase them up on manpodcast.com. Steinhauer has also written for Slate, the Los Angeles Review of Books, and the Paris Review. In 2014, the U.S. chapter of the International Association of Art Critics voted her its Best Art Reporting Award. Jillian Steinhauer, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Hello. So when we think about gender inequality in the art world, what specifically are we talking about? Where do we or where do you see the greatest manifestations of that inequality? I find it pretty pervasive. I mean, it sort of depends where you're where you're looking, I think where you would, I think that where you would see it greatest is where you would be concentrating, but I do think it's probably everywhere. So if you're someone who really focuses on the market, you would see the inequity in the market and the discrepancy between the top men's sales and the women's sales. 
if you're like me and you're not as market focused and you're more focused on shows that are happening, you would look around and, you know, when we were putting together a fall guide this year for hyper, this fall for hyperallergic, we had a real tough time finding solo shows of women in New York. I mean, galleries don't always announce their schedules really far in advance, but in terms of major museums, there was really a dearth. So there's things like that. So I feel like it sort of, you know, depends on where your eye is, but it's kind of all over. <laughs> it's also in the writing. I mean, I would say for me, mostly in the like dearth of of loud vocal female voices is where I, I see it missing in the writing. Not so much blatant sexism in people's writing most of the time, but more like, you know, I'll review a major show and look around and notice that I'm the only woman who has done so. You know, it's, it's interesting you mentioned the exhibition thing this season. You know, these things are cyclical and, and, and some seasons are really heavy on, on living artists. This season is particularly heavy around the country on historical shows. And of course, the farther you go back, the more likely you, you, know, you are to have, have male heavy shows. Is it useful to speak differently of the commercial art world and the non-commercial art world when we discuss gender issues? I think old me might have said yes, but I mean, the longer you are in the art world... Uh, like you and myself, or is that you and me, <laughs> you and I, whatever, I think you realize how, for better or for worse, mostly probably for worse, how uh, entangled they are these days. And so I think separating them out doesn't always make the most sense. I mean, it would be nice to say that they're totally separate, but given the way museums are structured and how dependent they are on private money and how that private money moves the market, I think it's sort of naive or wishful thinking to say that they're totally separate. I mean, I, I don't think that women selling as high as men will just solve everything magically, but I do think there has to be some kind of correlation. Without having seen statistics, because I don't think they exist, I would strongly suspect that there are, particularly from the 20th century forward, more curators at American art museums who are women than men. Yes. It's interesting when you get into discussions of the actual makeup of organizations, I think you find, I mean, I was talking about this last night, actually, with a friend. The art world is filled with women. It's not like there aren't women who are working in museums and other institutions and, you know, at Sotheby's and in Christie's. But I think it's sort of a similar story, I think, across a lot of fields where when you get to the top is where the women thin out. So, you know, there are tons of women curators. There are not as many women directors of museums. There's that kind of thing. And also, you know, unfortunately, just having women curators doesn't fix everything. I mean, women... No, but it is a place where we might discuss there being a certain gender equality or really darn close to it, you know, curatorial. Right? Yeah, it's interesting. I feel like I came... Uh, my first job was in book publishing, and I still have some friends there. And it's it, it strikes me as somewhat similar in that there are many women in publishing at many levels, but there aren't a lot of women running publishing houses. It's sort of like there's a ceiling, and it's harder to move up. There was a recent study or report that I really probably shouldn't be citing because I didn't read it very closely. I just skimmed sort of what was it was about. But it was talking about how it is, though, still easier for women to move up than it is for people of color in like museums and other institutions. So that's interesting as well. I mean, you know, within the category of women, there are a lot more subcategories. So if we look back historically, Linda Nochlin's landmark essay, Why Have There Been No Great Women Artists, dates to 1971. Guerrilla Girls, one of whom, at least the current iteration-ish of Guerrilla Girls, is on your panel 
at or in the series of panels that the National Museum of Women and the Arts is doing. Guerrilla Girls is formed in 1985, so 71-85. I don't mean this as a knock on 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 the symposiums that NAMWA is putting together, but has the conversation moved much or the activism moved much since the heyday of, of, of the lady primates, if you will, in the 1980s? Yeah, you know, this is something I struggle with a lot, actually. I mean, I'm young, so I was not really around for those things. I mean, obviously, I've done my homework since then. <laughs> but I really, this is a this is a tough thing for me that I think about a lot. I fear it hasn't moved forward enough. And I think that's also why I just sort of brought up the issue of people of color, because I think, you know, the feminism of the 70s and the the 60s and the 70s and probably the 80s was somewhat monolithic in terms of being like a white women's a white upper class women's movement um and that that's always white been straight upper class women's movement yes yes good point and that's always been the critique that's you know was lobbied at it rightfully so and sometimes i feel concerned that the the discussion in the art world hasn't evolved far enough past that i will say the program at the national museum of women in the arts is really diverse and the lineup I think is fantastic. So that gives me hope, but I do sometimes wonder if we need another symposium, that sounds terrible because I'm on this symposium and I'm excited, but I, I am excited and they're gonna hate me now, but I just, you know, sometimes I often, I find myself asking what we can, what else we can do, how we can push further beyond these conversations that we seem to have a lot, but I don't know how far they're getting us. That was indeed in my notes. Is there something else, whether it's direct action, whether it's research or, or, or something else entirely that fits 2015, fits 30 years after the Gorilla Girls? Right. You know, it's hard because the Gorilla Girls really are and were this kind of direct action. I mean, maybe in a more a less abrasive way than some of the actions you see in museums now. But um, they pretty abrasive. Yeah. I mean, they've been doing it, you know. I mean, they, you know, they called out specific curators in, in the mid 80s. I mean, that's something you just don't see in today's art world. Yes, totally. I think actually you're right in that they're, they've always been very impressive for being much more targeted. I think now you get things where people literally go into museums and disrupt, but it's not, it's a little more vague in terms of who the target is sometimes. But yeah, you know, I, I think about this all the time. I, I wish I knew what what else we could or should be doing. I mean, they're definitely, the, the, the thing that sparked this symposium was Maura Riley, her article in Art News, which did a lot of- Maura Riley, the former curator at the Sackler Center at the Brooklyn Museum and now at the National Academy. Yeah, so she wrote a piece for Art News that I think sort of, it was the, it spawned this symposium, this day of events. She did a lot of counting, which has been a strategy among feminists, I think, recently online, where she was tallying up, you know, numbers of museum shows and um, numbers of sales and, you know, trying to sort of do research and get hard numbers. So that's, I think, also been one strategy recently, and that's been applied well beyond Mora's piece as well. I mean, Michael Hebron has done the gallery tally and in the publishing world, again, like Vita, his organization does a count of publications that are running reviews of women's books and women bylines and stuff like that. So I think like counting has become a strategy recently. But again, I don't know. I mean, I guess I like to think the numbers do make a difference. I think counting is important because you do need data to support assertions that, oh, things are gendered or sexist. Or to prompt change if right. those 
Right. And I, and there have been examples in terms of like the lit world and Vita, like I think there actually have been examples of male editors in chief being like, wow, we're doing a really bad job. So it does, I think it can do something, but at the same time, I still wonder what we can do beyond that. I, I haven't figured it out what we can do next. Are there places in, in the art world, either in the commercial art world or the non-commercial art world or the media or wherever else, where we see gender equality? And if so, what can we learn from them? Ooh, that's a great question. I mean, I there must be micro sort of examples. I mean, you know, there are definitely galleries that have equal rosters or, you know, even weighted more towards women. There are some museums that I think do a very good job of being more balanced. I mean, say what you will about it, but the new museum I've always found does a pretty good job of having much more of a gender balance than any of the other museums major ones in New York, probably because they're not dealing with historical stuff as much. And because when a museum has a director who is a female, that really does matter. Yeah, I mean, if they, yeah, I mean, you know, there can be exceptions, but definitely, I mean, obviously it's, it matters there. What can we learn from them? I mean, I guess at the most basic level, we can learn that, you know, there really sh shouldn't be as many obstacles as there are, and that these organizations can function perfectly well, if not better, with this kind of parody, it seems like a really obvious lesson, but that always seems to me was one of the biggest ones. And this is maybe not quite what you wanted, but one thing I think a lot about too is there's been, you know, I've seen a fair amount of all women shows as well. I feel like that's been around a bit. Absolutely. I couldn't agree with, I mean, that, that, that there's been a real, I think, uptick in that. Yeah. I mean, last I, few was, years. I was actually on a panel at MAD over the summer, or maybe it was the spring about like the museum of art and design. Yeah. Do we need all women exhibitions anymore? But I, I was saying there, and I really think this is true. I mean, seeing those kinds of shows when they're done well, for me, what's really important about them is that they show that there's not one type of art that women make. I think that's still the stereotype that you get, that women make a certain kind of work. And Nicole Hebron, when she did her gallery tally, I spoke to her last December after she went to Miami, and she has direct quotes from gallerists and, you know, their assistants saying things to that effect. So I think, you know, I guess one of the, the lessons that can be learned when we, you know, actually work on this and get towards parity is that women are as deserving and they're as good artists and they don't make one kind of work. And once you stop having to pigeonhole them, you just open things up. I mean, I think it's a more interesting conversation. Yeah, I, I agree. The pigeonholing into single gender exhibition strikes me as a repetition of the previous problem rather than as an inclusionary assertive strategy. Well, I actually, I mean, for me, it depends on the show. Yes, yes, I should, I, I would agree with that. And I think, you know, I, I get a lot of, there are often people, when I write, I write about women a lot on the blog and these kinds of issues, and I get a lot of people, we get all these readers, whenever we write about gender or race, saying, oh, can't you just see past gender? Like, I'm colorblind, can't you see past race and ethnicity? But the thing is, until the larger structures see past those things, we can't just pretend that they're not barriers. Absolutely. As long as there is structural difference and there, all the evidence is that there is, that including details about who gets shown is relevant. Well, to, to make that point, you're making a little more present. So there's a show coming up, I think it's next year, at the, at the Denver Art Museum titled Women of Abstract Expressionism. Is that an example of a, of a useful single gender show? 
Well, I haven't seen it. No one has, so I don't know yet. Although there is an artist list, 12 artists. Yes, and there are images. I suspect so. I mean, I think in terms of, I, I did actually ask the curator this question when I interviewed her about why she and did. We'll have a, and we'll have a link to that piece up on manpodcast.com. Oh, great. I asked her why she chose to show just the women instead of the women alongside the men. I'm now forgetting what she said. <laughs> but, you know, I do think it's probably useful in the sense that, especially with a, a movement like abstract expressionism, where pretty much the people associated with it are men, and it has a very like macho association. I think there really is value in saying, look, there was this whole other community of people who were making this type of work. You know, I think it would be maybe the next step would be to have a much more integrated show of ABEX. I would really like to see this women's work alongside the men's. But in terms of foregrounding the women and trying to correct the record, I think it's useful. I fully admit that I might be wrong uh, in retrospect, but that's that's my feeling. What do you think? Yeah, I think the first point you raised is is, is is the right one. We haven't seen the show yet. There's an artist list. It's an interesting list. There are some names on it that you might not expect to see on it. There are a couple names on it that aren't in it, aren't, aren't on the list. But, but to me, the more valuable show conceptually would be a revisionist, a smart, thorough revisionist ABEX show that includes a broader range of artists than the hard drinking boys gang. And that isn't only about women. Right. Well, I also wonder, I mean, I don't, I don't know, cause I'm not, a, I've never been a museum curator, but I do also wonder if some of these choices come down to, you know, just resources and what's available. I mean, the thing about I mean, putting together like a major revisionist ABEX survey is something that only a handful of museums could really pull off, I would say. I would say 20 museums could do it. That's a pretty good number. Okay, fair enough. I trust your judgment more than mine on this. And, and, <laughs> and, I, and, I, and, and you know, the other thing I, I, I think, and this is maybe wandering a little far afield, but, you know, it's, I, I guess we can do that, is I, I think that we are seeing a conscious broadening of the canon of that part of American art history. I mean, the, later this fall, the Pennsylvania Academy of Fine Arts is doing a Norman Lewis retrospective, which is probably the single show from that era that has not been done that I most want to see. I would love to, uh, right now, the National Portrait Gallery is showing an Elaine de Kooning portraits show. So I think there are places that are, you know, breathing air into the canon. And I like that, but I like that a lot. I mean, it's, it's, you know, the canon is that, you know, the canon of that period and time and place and type of work is truly and deeply ossified and, and it needs to be reconsidered in terms of geography and gender and race and national origin. I mean, you know, we could keep going. But again, you know, I mean, I think even if there are 20 museums that could mount that big revisionist show, you have to... I mean, you have to really want, I mean, that's a huge undertaking. <laughs> you have to have a scholar that can do it. Yeah, you have to have someone You have to have a scholar that's prioritized that. I think it really starts with having historians who have, I, I think in this specific example, it starts with having, with, with, with historians who are interested in doing that. And then in having directors, and as we were talking about in terms of money, trustees who, who want to support it. Right. And that's maybe also where you get into some of the commercial questions and the overlap I mean, you know, there has to be like that, that kind of will towards revising 
a history that involves major stars of the market as well. On the, on the male side, we see it with, with Clifford Still. You, you, you don't get Still included in lots of things because there is not a market-oriented broad collector base of, of the work to kind of advocate for it. And if you go back historically, say, into the beginning of the 20th century, you never see Hilma F. Klimt in historical shows about early 20th century modernism because the work does not exist in the art market. Right. Exactly. Or, or, or it is not broadly collected. It is at one institution in one country. And that's, again, why we can't really talk about them as being separate, the commercial and non. Well, Jillian Steinhauer, thanks so much for talking with me. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.